Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Crickets by Richard Matheson. This is first published in a magazine called Shock Magazine. Um, May 1960, the very first issue. And uh, it has a little... um, (laughs) Some magazines had like sort of gimmicks. Um, And a lot of the horror magazines, especially the horror comic books, they would have the hosts... This one has a host, and the host is a spider named Lulabel, who describes the story we're about to discuss this way. Now, here's the kind of story I really like. It proves that everything turns out for the worst in the worst of all possible worlds. And uh, I, I explained to my students um, that this was a uh, sort of twisted allusion to a line that appears again and again in a Voltaire novel called Candide. Um, <laughs> and it sort of works the same way in that book <laughs> in a certain sense as it does uh, in the positive version uh, that's used there, which is uh, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Um, if you um, live in the best of all possible worlds, uh, anything that happens to you must be for the best. And if you live in the worst of all possible worlds, it must be for the worst. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a glass half full, glass half empty sort of phrase, which um, it doesn't really do much other than it's it's kind of cute that the story uh, about crickets is introduced by a spider. <laughs> I well, I cute. actually think there's another reason that, that your observation about... Uh, this is important to have full and half empty and what kind of world we live in. But uh, how about first just giving us a sense of the facts of the story? Okay. Um, in, in the story, we meet uh, a couple who seem to be on vacation in, I would say, probably a remote uh, hotel in the, in the countryside. They're near a lake. Um, no other guests are mentioned except for one man they they saw earlier in the dining hall they're out appreciating the lake the man comes out they uh begin a conversation with him about the crickets that they hear chirping uh off in the woods and um he has a theory that the crickets are actually communicating names we find out that these names are of dead people or perhaps soon-to-be-dead people, and then they die? (laughs) 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 It's something like that. Yeah. Did I leave anything important out? Well, you you left out that the guy who figures out the code Mm -hmm. dies first. Yeah. And they see him die. And, you know, the way the, the story ends is the crickets go silent or actually they don't see him die. They see the aftermath of him having been killed by what looks like thousands of little tiny cuts all over his body. Right. Um, and there's a hole in the screen of his hotel room window um, through which the crickets presumably entered and then left again before um, Harold and Jean Galloway came in and. Um, and they see him, and then um, he's not quite dead. 
and he spells out the names of a bunch of people. The third one is his own name. And then he looks at Hal and he spells out Harold Galloway. And then he spells Gene Galloway. And the last line was, then they were alone with a dead man. And outside in the night, a million crickets rustled their wings together and waited. Right. And I, I presume that we're being told that it's the crickets who are waiting. Um, but I don't know. It may be that Gene uh, and Harold are waiting. Um, but, but I think it's the crickets. Well, we don't know what they're waiting for. But obviously we're supposed to be terrified and in suspense for the Galloways. Yeah. And that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's – I think he's still alive as he's dying and spelling out these names. Um, oh, yeah. He's spelling them out in English, too, which is not the way that the the, the crickets do. I'm not uh, – so uh, – Oh, he, he knows their code. It's like standing next to somebody who uh, I see. I see what runs, the, runs a telegraph. He doesn't look up at you and say dot, dot, dash, dash. Right, you know right, what I mean? right. Yeah. I got it. He's, he's, he's listening to them, and he's, he's transcribing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the last thing he transcribes is their names, and then they were alone with a dead man. Right. Um, his theory uh, is that the crickets are the instruments of the dead. That is, dead people, for some reason, he has decided, um, want more people to be dead. And the crickets tap out the name of the person who's supposed to die. This may, in fact, be a way that the crickets coordinate with each other so they know whom to go after since one cricket can't kill anybody, but <laughs> a thousand together can do the trick. I, I can't help but notice that this 1960 story picks up on what was a very popular trope uh, from the 1940s through the end of the 1950s of science fiction showing us hive minds. Mm -hmm which were collectively, um, uh, in some sense, a representation of the dehumanization that goes with everybody being mechanized. Um, and also specifically um, in that time period, the, the dehumanization that happens when everybody falls under a totalitarian rule, most obviously in the post-war period, communist rule. Um, but this hive mind is in fact not controlled by itself, as in Jack Williamson's The Humanoids um, or uh, The Borg, but in fact um, is under the control of the dead. And I've got to say that uh, in a lot of ways, this story, when you think about it, fits perfectly with, uh, with Richard Matheson's career. I mean, his most famous work is I Am Legend. Mm-hmm which is a novel about a guy who, after a plague, turns out to be probably the only single human being alive who has not been affected and turned into what, in effect, is a vampire. And most of the novel is set inside his fortified house as outside the vampires keep waiting for him because they want fresh blood. Um, it's as if, well, now there's a million crickets rustling their wings together. Mm. 
and they're waiting and they're outside this room where Gene and Hal Galloway are sitting and they are the instruments of the dead or in this case the undead just like the vampires so the emotional um, trajectory of this story is much like the one that's the backstory for I am legend you wake up you find out that outside there is this force the force wants to kill you because the force wants you to be like it and what the it is is depersonalized absolutely horrible horrifying um dead folks um and son of a gun the it seems to me that crickets fits right in with that quite well and uh, much of it is written as effectively as matheson in fact writes but uh that story was 1954 which mm-hmm. is right in the heart of the time when hive minds and the Red Scare uh, dominate uh, much of science fiction. This is therefore, I think, sort of a late and uh, comparatively uh, minor, um, <laughs> forgive me, rebirth of that successful novel. Yeah, I I uh, I, I, I want to compare it to a. A short story by Philip K. Dick uh, called Expendable, which uh, tackles a very similar sort of situation. Uh, A man discovers that the ants that live outside and inside his home are um, uh, a threatening force to him personally, um, specifically because he's he heard them in conversation. Um, and, and that they, they, when they realize that he can understand what they're saying, um, he's got to be destroyed. Normally they just, you know, eat, eat parts of his house and live there and reproduce. But, um, in the, the long war between men and insects, um, it's very rare for humans to, to be able to understand them. And what's so funny about that story is that it is a comedy. Whereas this, there's, there's, this is absolutely not a comedy as far as I can see. I mean, there, there's some. Uh, it's kind of funny in a, in the way it's a, the situation is and how the story plays out, but it's not like you don't end with a big smile on your face. You, you're, I think, supposed to, you know, be creeped out by the idea and like open to the possibilities of what does it mean, and um, and isn't, isn't it. Isn't it spooky when you do hear crickets late at night and you're in an isolated location? It's very much about mood. And and I, I really uh, – the reason I submitted this story for you to look at is because I like Richard Matheson's writing. And this, this is a nice short one. Um, it's not my favorite of his by any means. But it does the, th- the thing that I think is so interesting that Matheson does that I don't see any other writers doing. He's really about the psychology of an individual sort of locked in their own mind. Now, in this case, it's not perfectly exposed unless we sympathize with the small man, John Morgan, the guy who is alone um, in his discovery of, of the cricket's communication. And when he tries to share... Uh, what he's discovered, the couple uh, treat him in a way that is almost isolating. I mean, they're not as unkind as 
as all that, but they're also they don't embrace the idea that this guy is basically he's on his own. And in the end, they can't save him. In the end, they might believe him, but they didn't believe him most of the most of the time. And even if they did, um, they don't end up doing anything that can that can help him. In a lot of of Matheson's stories, I feel this same dynamic playing out. So, for you mentioned, I am Legend, and in that, there's a a man alone stuck in his house. His former neighbors are outside saying, "Come out, Neville." Um, he tries to make connections with other human beings and a dog in that novel. Um, and it's very difficult for him. He's isolated. Another, um, maybe his second most famous novel is The Shrinking Man or The Incredible Shrinking Man. Um, mm-hmm. And in that one, we've got a man who, he's got a wife and he's got a life. But when he's exposed to some chemicals, he begins to shrink and get smaller. And to me, when I read that novel, I, I I was just shocked at how odd it was compared to what I expected. I I expected oh it's a it's about a man who shrinks, and it was. But it the isolation that happens to him is more profound, I think, than the than the fact that he's getting smaller. When he he shrinks at one point in the in that novel, um, people begin treating him like a child because he's he's short, and um, at one point in the novel, he gets picked up um, as uh, someone thinks he's a child, picked up, uh, and it almost becomes a like a sexual predator scene in which this truck driver is going to, you know, rape a child. But the man, the 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 protagonist, isn't as upset about that as he is about sort of he's locked in his own isolation, and the novel just keeps going. And, and that sense of being isolated and alone, locked in your own head, uh, it's not neur- neurotic exactly, but it's certainly um, related. It's, it's like this is a thing that I don't see any other author do as interestingly and interestingly well as Matheson. And I thought it was – here it was, it, was, it was distanced by the fact that our viewpoint characters are not that person, but that person's still here. This – isolated hotel in the mountains or the woods uh, by the lake with the screened protect screen protectors over the doors and then in in that hotel uh, dining hall the only person mentioned is the one man in the dining hall they said who is it and it's the man we saw in the dining hall earlier it's almost like this is an abandoned hotel with no staff and no no um, no people just the sound of crickets in the outside wilderness and and this couple who can't even help this man i think you've put your finger on um the cause of my my disaffection for aspects of the story which in general i like very well um the story is a framed narrative it begins with with uh Hal and Jean, um, and in fact, the writing is smooth, and, and mm-hmm. maybe we can, uh, in a moment, turn back to how it's written. It's really very adroitly written, and then in a quite clunky way, we get to Henry Morgan, 
um, I mean, sorry, we get to John Morgan um, telling about um, his discovery of the Cricket's Code. Um, and then it goes back to Hal and Jean's viewpoint. I think that whenever you have a nested narrative, to some extent, the story is about what the outer most narrator learns, how the outermost narrator is educated. Um, this is true in Frankenstein. It's true in the time machine. I mean, anytime you have a nested narrative, um, the overall uh, issue is what did this narrator learn? And that narrator is often a stand in for us, but, but that's another matter. And here, by making the overall question, what happens to Hal and Jean? Mm-hmm. It makes much more diffuse our attention to the story of that little dark man. Uh, And I think that it's clunky, the move from the frame into the story and out again. But I think you're quite right in seeing that there is something centrally important about that, that little man. The man is described as small Mm -hmm. and dark And we're told that he has been um, trying to figure out, he's been listening attentively to the critics, to the crickets, um, for seven years. Well, you know, a little black man, I mean black in the sense of of dark, I don't mean uh, skin color, a little uh, black man who's involved for seven years, doesn't this sort of sound like Rumpelstiltskin? I mean, we're, we're in a fairy tale world. This, you know, the Black Prince, the Dark Prince, uh, Old Nick. I mean, it sounds a little bit like this guy has been worshiping the devil unknowingly. <laughs> and and what he does, you know, he says, I think I've got the code. I've got it now. Let me show you. And there's all kinds of wine going back and forth. He says, it would give me great pleasure to buy you some wine. We see the couple, when they are in the dining hall, drinking wine a lot, both alone uh, and then when they are with, uh, with Morgan. So there's a lot of, I don't know, Eucharistic imagery here. There's a lot of blood imagery. Um, he wants to get them initiated into his knowledge. It is because, he thinks... Um, the crickets have found out that he knows the code, he's broken their code, <laughs> that they're after him. And if he thinks that's the case, what does it mean that when he gets up to walk across the dining room and just sit at an other empty table where he can see these people, he puts the notebook in front of them and says, take care of this. Will you watch this for me? So he, in fact, is passing on to them the same contagion of knowledge Mm -hmm. that he fears is going to kill him. And he's involving them in it. Now, one of the ways that this story, I think, becomes interesting is in the relationship, although I don't like the the clunkiness, this gets rid of the focus on that individual, is in the relationship between what ordinary people like the Galloways know and what extraordinary people, maybe they've even gotten extraordinary knowledge by, you know, finding out the knowledge of the devil like Faust, uh, know. And the story begins very smoothly. Um, After supper, they walked to the lake and looked at its moon reflecting surface. 
Pretty, isn't it, she said. Mm-hmm. It's been a nice vacation. Yes, it has, he said. Behind them, the screen door on the hotel porch opened and shut. Someone started down the gravel path toward the lake. Jean glanced over her shoulder. Who is it, asked Hal without turning. That man we saw in the dining room, she said. What smooth, gorgeous, unobtrusive mm -hmm. writing here. I mean, already we have the screen door. We have the importance of a sound unseen. We know the name of the couple. We know that it's the end of a vacation. We know where they are physically. I mean, everything is already set up without anybody giving a little info dump. It's mm -hmm. perfect. But I would also point out that the word vacation is right in there. And that word occurs again mm -hmm. after they have dealt with Morgan and said to each other, this is a heck of a way to end a vacation. Now, if what happens to them is that they have learned the secret knowledge of what's really controlling human life then everything before that was the vacation. They went away to have a vacation, but in fact, they've ended the vacation by learning the deeper truth about life, that it is mortal, or we are, we, there are forces out there that will, in a mindless group way, attack us. And they resent any power and sense of individual will and autonomy and happiness that we can make for ourselves. In that sense, the end of the vacation is already set up as the philosophical possibility. Mm. What happens? Um, it's, it's a terrific, I think, inversion of what would happen in a fairy tale. Because in the fairy tale, the little dark man, who after his seven years, you know, mm -hmm would be defeated. But in fact, as with the vampires, he infects the ordinary people. There's another interesting set of reversals here. Matheson is, I think, a lot more literate than people often give him credit for. Um, uh, this idea that you pick up from Lulu Bell, that this is somehow uh, an inversion of Candide, uh, I think is a is a profound one. You know, off on vacation, everything seems so wonderful. But in fact, the world around the vacation is not. Well, you know, I started thinking about these names. Morgan. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a very, very famous Morgan. Um, he is one of the very most famous pirates in the history of English. Um, and Galloway is a place from which many privateers sailed. Um, it is a place that the English have had trouble dealing with. Now, why give this guy the name of a pirate? And then I thought about it. Remember, you just used it before, the name of the main character who's trying to defend himself against the vampires in I Am Legend. Mm -hmm. Neville. It's, it's Neville. And Thomas Neville, in fact, was the guy um, who was able finally to get pirates out of the English Channel. 
and make England safe to be able to go and begin its sea voyages and become the dominant sea power of its time. So he was, in fact, what was originally a privateer. That is someone who was authorized by the government to go out and get a hold of these ships that were enemies of the state and claim part of their booty as your reward for doing so. So we've got a good guy pirate who is trying to defend against the masked undead in I Am Legend. And six years later, we've got a a would-be good guy pirate. He wants to be a good guy pirate, but he can't pull it off. You know, instead of saying, I'm going to take this knowledge to my grave, he infects someone else mm-hmm. and sends them to their graves. So this idea of what is authorized behavior and what is not, what you can take from people and what you cannot, what you give to people and what you cannot. Um, if we want to look at it in the glasses half full way that you mentioned, then all, all of life is a vacation. There's one good, nice thing to do after another. If we want to look at it in the glass half empty way, those guys who are fine for the government that authorizes them are pirates to the rest of us, boarding our ships, killing us, stealing our livelihoods. And crickets, well, in the silence, we hear them. <laughs> I, 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 I think Matheson is, is one of the authors – who he is understated in his style, um, but it's very it's very well done. He's this is this is not my favorite kind of writing. I, I much prefer dense dense sort of info dumpy Lovecraft style writing. It's my favorite. I don't know why, but that's just my favorite. This is very sort of light and um, efficient, but there are some some lines that recur that really it gives you a sense of of what your, how to interpret what's what's actually going on emotionally for characters in the scene, it's it's pretty good. Um, the words that repeat, um, I want to point to these in the description here. Morgan seemed to listen for a moment, his face rigid, his gaunt throat moved, then a forced smile. So that word rigid comes up again and again. Rigid is a word to use to describe. Uh, muscles unmoving right that you're stuck um frozen and then his throat again his throat worked convulsively this word convulsively comes up uh, at least twice maybe three times in the story um he says i don't know he said maybe when enough there are enough names when enough of them are ready they'll his throat moved convulsively they'll come back he said and uh, like what zombies but the important part is um it's the emotional reaction that is this is eliciting from the viewpoint characters specifically a gene even more so than her her sort of more conventional husband more sort of just um he doesn't seem to have as much personality as gene does but that word rigid is used to describe both the man with knowledge, Morgan, and Jean, uh, and her her reaction to what he's saying. Jean held her knife and fork with rigid fingers. For some reason, she felt a chill creeping up her legs. 
earlier, uh, this is on page 85, um, Jean felt as if she were a block of wood. The room seemed to shift balance around her. Everything leaned toward her. The, this sense of it, it's, it's a projection of emotions um, is terrific. And Matheson is amazing at this. I think this is why people instinctively love Matheson's stories. Because w- whenever I read one of his stories, I'm never shocked by the profundity of his originality. I'm always impressed by how efficiently he gets to to what he's trying to do, how he manipulates me. And I, it, it's why he's not my favorite author. But when he combines it, what makes I Am Legend so great is that it has this ability to transfer empathy for the character's position in a in a person who is completely isolated and that's pretty impressive i mean that's what fiction is really right it's the transferring of emotions from text written down by some person into the reader's mind into the reader themselves i agree that that is i wouldn't say that is what fiction is but it certainly is uh, a powerful part of of fiction um, I, I also like Matheson a lot. I am not as keen on the story as I'm hearing you to be. I do like it a lot. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. It's not the greatest story ever, but, but it's it, a nice it, it, exemplar. But of, in addition to the, in addition to the structural clunkiness of setting up that, you know, so tell us why are you, let me, let me tell you my story. Um, Morgan says, uh, there are a few, not many, but a few places where the writing doesn't really project for me um, a believable sense of someone else's emotion. Gene uh, is drinking here. The wine was dry and tart. It trickled in chilly drops down Jean's throat, making her shiver. And as I read that over, I took the glass of cold water that I have sitting next to me to just try it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't trickle water down my throat. When I swallow, Water doesn't trickle down my throat. <laughs> Even cold water doesn't trickle down my throat. I admit I didn't go and try it with wine to see if I could trickle wine down my throat. But the fact is that Matheson is, from time to time, as terrific a writer as he is, he's letting himself be a little sloppy here. On the other hand, uh, you know, I really like looking for information density. And this is a 1960 story. This was when I was a young teenager, and uh, it wasn't too many years after I had picked up a Boy Scout handbook thinking I would learn nifty stuff. Um, and I, I did, and I read the Boy Scout handbook. Um, not that I was a Boy Scout, but I thought, well, you know, this is cute. Learn how to tie different kinds of knots and stuff. A, a good thing for a kid growing up in Brooklyn. And because uh, you never know when you're going to need to <laughs> sail a boat, I guess. I don't know. I was a teenager, a little teenager I, and uh, maybe 12. But I remembered some things from that that Boy Scouts handbook. And one of the things that I remembered I absolutely fascinated me was that if you listen to a cricket, to crickets chirping and counted how many chirps they made, you could tell what temperature it was. Hmm. 
And and I remembered that. So when I, I knew we were going to be speaking today, I, I went to see if my recollection was correct. And it is. There's something called Dolbear's Law. It's D-O-L-B-E-A-R, Dolbear's Law, which was published in 1897. And basically it says this. Listen to the number of chirps. So count them for a minute. Take that number and subtract 40. Divide the result by four and add 50. Okay, number of chirps in 60 seconds, minus 40, divide the result by four, and add 50. And that will give you the temperature in degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. There really is a cricket's code. Mm -hmm. And I really did learn it around the same time this story came out. And I can't help but wonder, like these covert references to old pirates, if Matheson, too, didn't know, by golly, there is strange stuff going on in the world. And it just may be that we're not aware of it. But when we become aware of it, it gets really spooky. But there's always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. There's always more for the crickets to say anyway. (laughs) 